Hello and welcome to the Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today I'm here with Mark Galley. Mark is the former editor of Christianity Today, and he's the author of When Did We Start Forgetting About God? Uh, and he must have been pretty bored in quarantine because he agreed to talk about his book with me today. So, Mark, welcome to the program. Good to be with you. Good to hear about your show and what the type of things you're trying to do. I think it's great. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, I guess when when the title of the book is a question, uh, you really can't do any better than just begin with that question. So, when when did we start forgetting God? Well, the temptation is to say December third, nineteen fifty eight, or something like that. But uh, the title is is uh, intended to be a a teaser in the sense that uh, there is really no start date, and, and if you look at it in a lot of different ways. Uh, it's part it's uh even though i make uh a specific historic argument that there was a time when evangelicals uh i feel had a more passionate intimate relationship with god sometime in the last i don't know a couple centuries uh, that has drifted away and so that uh we're at a state now where we do a lot of things for god we talk about god a lot but I'm not convinced that God is at the forefront of our heart and mind and soul and strength. And that's essentially the argument I'm making in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't think it, it's not – I'm probably putting this into more explicit and blunt terms than, than you have it in the book. Uh, but it, it really it really is about the church, meaning the institution of the church or the rituals of the church, the building of the church. Uh Kind of taking the forefront and overshadowing, um, overshadowing the worship of God. It, it, it's it's really become about that the church uh, institution almost becoming the object of worship in many ways. Well, there's that. There's a number of things that become these uh, focus of our lives, and so that's for that would be the institutional church would be one form. And that would you see you would see that especially you see that especially in liturgical churches. I'm. I myself am an Anglican, mm-hmm. and you see that how lit- liturgy and the institution of the church can benefit a person's l- spiritual life and enhance it and make it go deeper. But it, you don't have to be a you know a great spiritual director to see that it also begins to replace God. But I think for most of evangelicals, it's not it's not the institutional church because I mean, evangelicals have traditionally been suspicious of the church and of institutions in general. But they, they're they very committed to the idea, and this this would be one of our great strengths as evangelicals, to the idea of doing things for God, mm-hmm. making sure that we are serving Him. And what uh, what I find, at least, whether we're worshiping or doing good works out in the world, a lot of, thing, a lot of times the things we do and how we do them and how we react to them become more of a central focus, and God begins to take a back seat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, at the at the time of this interview... Uh, most churches across the country are in, you know, week six or whatever of a uh, of shelter in place orders. We haven't been able to meet in person in most cases. Um, do you think that that will change the church? Uh, do you think that that will help us or, or hurt us in the long term in remembering our first love? Well, that's a that's a really that's a really good question, and because I think it's wor- it's probably going to end up working in both different ways in both ways for example uh i think there are a number of people that that because they are no longer going to church regularly or to uh a weekly small group or a number of things that uh churches have in order to help support our faith i think they're they're gonna find uh, you know i don't i don't really need that (laughs) Mm -hmm. it doesn't really add anything to my life as i thought it did um and I think you might, what you might find is they've, what they people like that will find is that the church may have been a part of their life, but maybe for not the most of the most serious of theological reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'll they'll begin to drift away and saying, I can worship God just as well on Sunday morning just by going for a walk around my neighborhood or going to the local forest preserve. Um, there will be other people though that are desperately missing church, and I think. The, for those who whose faith is more um, you know more alive and more serious, 
if they were ever tempted to think that uh, they could get by with virtual church, they won't be tempted by that anymore. <laughs> uh, For sure. I mean, yeah. you know, people are des- there are who are desperately missing being physically with other people. I, you know, I, for one, have never believed that those who are really trying to pursue God will ever find virtual church very satisfying at all. And I'm happy to say that I think for those people, the uh, the coronavirus has proven proven that correct. People really do need, do and want to be with one another. Mm-hmm. So I think in that regard, there'll be a lot of people that'll be, it'll be uh, short term. It'll be helpful for. Mm-hmm. So let, let's just let's just take the book and start at the beginning. You you divide the book into three parts: uh, the crisis, the church, and then deepening desire. Um, so let's start with the crisis and just talk about sort of the history of evangelicalism and sort of where we got our start to to now um so at you know at what point along the history of evangelicalism do you start to see this shift in in terms of the church really getting away from the worship of god being primary well, I think the first signs that uh, something is deeply amiss comes in the 90s when there was a lot of talk uh, about being, a, you know, there's books written about being post-evangelical, and there's the, uh, the emergent movement in which people are trying to shake off the, the label evangelical because they're finding some uh, fairly serious kind of problems within the texture of the church. Uh, and I think that's a result of actually uh, evangelicalism success. Mm-hmm. That is to say, up until you know the uh, 20s, 30s, and 40s, at least in the 20th century, evangelicalism was a marginalized uh, faith. It was v- very much associated still with fundamentalism. It hadn't really broken with fundamentalism yet. And if you wanted to be a fundamentalist slash evangelical, I mean, it took a fair amount of commitment because you were going to be different than a lot of your American neighbors. Um, and it took a certain type of, uh, uh, well, I guess I just said it, commitment to do that. Well, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there was a, you know, a surge, well, actually starting in the 50s with Billy Graham's crusades uh, and actually Graham's uh, organizational ability help, helping found or helping a lot of evangelical organizations found, you get this explosion of evangelical life in uh, in the U.S. You get Campus Crusade, you get InterVarsity, you get Navigators, you get various and sundry publishing houses. Um, and then you get a president of the United States uh, who announces that he's evangelical, uh, Jimmy Carter in 76. Mm-hmm. So now it's it's become more mainline and more established uh, faith. And... Uh, Oh, and and therefore more popular. And evangelicals as a whole became rose in, in terms of their socioeconomic status. They were taking on. They were they instead of becoming uh, blue collar workers, they became. They started getting professional degrees. And so, like any faith that becomes mainstream and normalized, uh, you begin to see a sapping of a lot of the spiritual energy in the group. And I I think that's you know hist- I didn't really write about this part in the book as such. But I think that's some of the uh, historic reasons for the the kind of more feverish activity in the name of Christ, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe a less less devotion to Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I use as my kind of starting point for American evangelicalism the Great Awakening uh, and the Second Awakenings, in which people talk about uh, they have these experiences of God that's palpable. In other words, they they they're in a, in a town in which people are feeling the presence of God as if as if, as they feel it's almost as if they feel the hot warm or humid air that's around them in a, on a summer day or he's around them uh, he's he's gusting through their lives like a like a gust of wind they it's you can the descriptions are just quite amazing so uh, and that is not something you know you. You might describe an evangelical as a person who was either touched deeply by God or on fire for God in the 8th, 17th, and 18th centuries, but certainly by the 19 by the 1980s, 
starting in the 1980s, 1990s, uh, it's hard to know how people would describe evangelicals, but today, you know, 2020, I'd say most people say evangelicals are people who are who are conservative, really conservative Republicans. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. how we're understood because because of our political commitments. Uh, and so something's gone. Something has shifted in terms of how we understand ourselves and how the world, how uh, the surrounding world understands us. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that you know for myself, um, most of the times, if I if I ever have the opportunity to sort of pick at evangelicalism for you know any any one of various reasons that that it deserves uh, to be picked on uh inevitably i'll have someone say well you're not thinking of us you're thinking of of something in the realm of politics or sociology and you know you're you're using that term the way that the media uses that term or you're using that term the way politicians use that term Right, yeah. but un- unfortunately, um, the term evangelical has almost shifted from being primarily a you know religious badge to almost being a, a political badge. And is there a point when we when we just have to say, um, okay, we need a new term, like we can't redeem this, um, or do we still continue to fight for that term evangelical? And um, realize that it's going to have some of that baggage with it. Yeah, I, I guess I've shifted my position on that. I used to uh, say we should try to retain the term, and there's a part of me that still says we should. I mean, there are other times and places when the word Christian itself has come under suspicion, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm not sure I'm willing to give that term up. But evangelical has gotten to such a state that. Uh, we might be wise to, to figure a way out of it. The problem is, uh, when I was editor-in-chief at Christianity Today, I gave that a great deal of thought. <laughs> at least two or three times in my career there, I, I just I started making a list of other, other possible names that could be we could use. And it was, uh, it was for me, it was impossible to come up with a different name. Uh, I, I just think, well, I think one of the things that evangelicals probably need to start doing, and it's not going to happen because... Uh, evangelicals aren't just the type of people to do that. Because I do think we just need to we need to shut up for a while and just stop talking and stop, uh, in a sense, still get stay engaged in society, but stop being engaged in society as as, as evangelicals or Christians and just get engaged mm-hmm. uh, and let our faith make itself known in our. Uh, in the in the way we actually interact with people and how we live our lives, but unfortunately, uh, we're we're in the habit of making sure people know that what we're doing we're doing it for God, and in a sense it's it's uh, virtue signaling, but now it's evangelical signaling. Mm-hmm. Th- thus, you have in the in the worst case scenario you have the uh, evangelical for Trump rally, which happened in January this last year. Uh, would be a t- would be a, the most obvious example of that. Um, so, so I, I'm not con- I'm not concerned that the core of evangelical life and faith is ever in danger. That's the one thing I like to make clear in the book. Um, that is to say, at its core, evangelical evangelicalism is a reform movement within the church and it's there's there's always been evangelicals even though they haven't used that term almost since the beginning of the church because the church is always in danger of letting its first love fade away and so there's always people calling it back to its first love that is to say to a faith that's more vital more personal more real more genuine it's not formalistic it's not activistic although it includes it can include formal liturgy, and it can, can it will include activity in the world, but mainly it's a it's a it's this it's this heart thing going on of an act, absolute passionate love for God that motivates everything. And this, there will always be a group in the church that's like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so whether contemporary evangelicalism fades away because of its political compromises, uh, and I mean compromises on both sides. I mean. You have the evangelicals on the right who have given themselves to politics on the right to, to become their identity. 
But unfortunately, you have a reactionary movement on the left, which is desperate to show people that we can be a Democrat and be an evangelical, which both 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 strike me as wrong-headed moves. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, if, if either of these groups or both of these groups fade away, I'm not particularly concerned that God will stop a- acting in his church to bring people to a vital and personal relationship with him that's energized by love for him, mm-hmm. um, whether we keep the label or not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's always difficult because any any label is going to be co-opted by people who don't fully you know fulfill the the greatest definition of that label. It's going to be misused and misapplied by you know any number of groups, and uh, it, I think it gets it gets really hard for people who are trying to live you know this life of evangelicalism and, and have this relationship with God to feel like they're continually being misrepresented, you know, everywhere that they, that they turn. And, um, I think for other people, they have this idea of like, okay, my church tradition is in the evangelical tradition, uh, but they don't really have much of a sense of the history behind all of that or, or what it means. And I think that was a, a key to your book was beginning um, beginning with that history and, and kind of you know outlining here is the history of evangelicalism and it, it kind of roots uh, it kind of roots the movement in history and, and even not not just like ancient history although you do go back that far um, but just the history of the 20th century because a lot of churches um, and aren't aren't familiar or don't teach that sort of history so evangelicalism kind of really feels unrooted I think to a lot of people and because of that they're seeking for their relevance and their rootedness in something in the present uh, which takes them obviously away from the gospel um, as they do so yeah and a good historical example of a term that uh, was um, came into disfavor is the word pietist Mm-hmm. The Pietist movement was, for all intents and purposes, early evangelicalism, starting uh, with the Moravians and many European branches, uh, and it it led to a, a, a. You read about the descriptions of early Pietists, and they they loved to read their Bible, they loved Jesus, they loved to pray exp- extemporaneously. Mm-hmm. They were very passionate, but they they the movement turned in many quarters into kind of a a, a legalism. Uh, and so it started getting a bad name, even though in the midst of that there were pietists who were not so legalistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of our great uh, our great theologians and philosophers in the 19th century were were raised in pietist homes. Karl Barth would be one example. Soren Kierkegaard would be another. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barth spent his whole life then rejecting pietism for various and sundry reasons, and didn't really come. In, Come back to any kind of semi-warm relationship to it till till he was late in life. Um, but some of it had to do with, and some of it had to do with how the Pietists themselves began acting, and then some of it had to do with just Pietism became a word like Puritanism. Puritans were another uh, really dynamic, powerful, theologically motivated group that really were trying to change the world in the name of Christ. And the name became associated with again legalism, stodgy, judgmentalism, <laughs> yeah. and so you, to call someone a Puritan or a Pietist today is to deeply insult them, and I think that's what's unfortunately happening with the word evangelical. Yeah, and, and it all goes back to this sense of when you're when what you're known for the most is what you do for God or what you're trying to do for God. Or the the social programs that you enact, or the political programs that you follow, um, rather than just the worship of God, it, it's always going to lead back to that uh, that sense of legalism, and that what I do saves me, or what I do is at the core, uh, what I do for God is is at the core of who I am as a Christian. And you know, what, in 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 this book, you you kind of that's kind of the main thing that you take issue with. And, um, you know, you, uh, you, you say this in the book. It says, my conclusion after surveying the biblical landscape 
is that the church's mission is not to go out and make the world a better place, to be a blessing, to transform culture, to bring justice to the earth, to work for human flourishing. The church's destiny and purpose is to live together in love in Christ to the praise of God's glory. And I think that really struck me because almost everything that we do in the church is related to those first things. Um, you know, almost every single phrase he uses to is, you know, something that you'll see churches use in their mission statements or, or whatever. Um, you know, I think the work for human flourishing is, is key to that. Now that's not to say those are bad things, I think. Um, but how do we, how do we find the proper balance in working these things together and saying that it's the living together and loving Christ that then drives these other issues rather than these other issues comprising the whole of what it means to be an evangelical or to be a Christian. Yeah. I mean, I think you've summarized kind of the, the most controversial point of the whole book quite well. Um, because there is a great amount of misunderstanding. I got, that's where I, the, I got the biggest pushback immediately uh, when I wrote this, that chapter as an essay last summer Mm-hmm. from uh the missional people uh, very good power you know people who are doing wonderful things for christ but um to say that the mission of the church is not to change the world but to but or you know another way i put it in the book is that the purpose of the church is not is uh, not to save the world uh, uh I'm, I'm forgetting the phrase exactly right now but to to make the world into the church in a sense mm-hmm. right. the the church becomes the focus uh, and our, uh, our worshipful and prayerful relationship with God becomes the primary primary thing. Um, and as you said, I mean, to to work in a food closet, to share the gospel with someone who doesn't know Christ, to work in the political realm for justice. I you know I have to repeat over and over and over again that I'm not against the church doing those things. Mm-hmm. I'm against those things replacing what the church is uh, supposed to be about. Uh, and I think one of the things we found in the coronavirus is that um, how important, is, uh, you know, how important the 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 worship life of the church is. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, the fact of the matter is, even in the coronavirus, you can still do a lot of good things for for God. You can you can write your congressman. You can uh, you can work at a, a a uh, food closet. I mean, they're, they're, people are figuring out how to do all these acts of mercy mm-hmm. safely with social distancing. Uh, but when you take when you take the guts out of the very center of it, the kind of the weekly worship of God, in which we basically are called to identify ourselves with Him and to uh, focus ourselves on Him, uh, you see that the the most crucial thing about the life of the church is missing now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the focus, uh, the gathered community of Christians coming together to worship, praise, and honor, and glorify God, which is, when you read the book of Revelation and you talk about the end of history, what it looks like when the, the writer of Revelation decided to picture that, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of course, he pictures people worshiping. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He doesn't picture them doing a bunch of things. Mm. Uh, the, at most, and there are other passages in which they are fellowshipping with one another uh, over a, at a wedding feast or a banquet, but in Revelation, they're worshiping mm-hmm. over and over and again. Uh, so um, I think the first thing has to be, um, well, let me say two things. Two, I, in, the, in this book, I just hint at what does it look like? So let me back up and just say, Really, the book, at its heart, it, it's a book that says we are called to love God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, and all our strength. Mm-hmm. And we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. Those are the two great commandments. But those those adjectives, all our mind, all our heart, all our soul, all our strength, only applies to the first commandments. That's supposed to be our highest priority. And to love God in that way doesn't mean just, oh, we have to do good things for him. Of course, it includes that. But the way the first commandment is phrased suggests there's something intrinsically uh, uh, appropriate about loving God in that way that doesn't include, it includes activity 
but it isn't limited to activity we do for God. So the book is basically calling us to do that, and I, I give hints about what that should look like. But I will admit that the book is not very good at giving concrete picture of what that's going to look like, and I do want to spend more time thinking about that mm-hmm. and um, talking about what does that life look like. So this book is more of a critique. I'd want to do a follow-up book on uh, what does that love look like, other than doing good things for God, which is, of course, we're supposed to obey his commandments. Of course, mm-hmm. that's part of loving God. Yeah. Uh, um, but I, uh, to, to give you one, one example, in, in, in some ways, if we were to live that life, it wouldn't necessarily on the external look a whole lot different. That is, I still have to get up in the morning. I still say my morning prayers. I still, uh, well, when I, I did go to work, I'm now retired, <laughs> but I still try to work. That is to say, I try to write, so I try to spend some more hours in the morning reading and writing. Uh, then I've got chores to do around the house, or I've got projects I'm doing. And I said, when life gets back to normal, there'll be groups I'll meet with. I'm doing some volunteer work for World Relief, uh, helping refugees, especially right now. Recent refugees who just got jobs are being laid off, and we're trying to help them figure out how to uh, get unemployment benefits. Uh, but in the midst of all that activity, which is kind of takes up our lives, uh, what I'm hoping to inculcate is a what I would call a God consciousness. Mm-hmm. That is to say, we wake up grateful to the Lord for the coming of the day, when we look out our window and we see the trees beginning to blossom, we think about God, our Creator. When we see uh, a bunch of people milling around the streets, we think uh, not what what can they do to help them, but we feel, in a sense, God's compassion for them. Um, so it's 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 this uh, it's this God consciousness that pervades everything we do that I think uh, I'm trying to get us to. And I'm not trying to say this is easy. I'm not trying to say that I do it. (laughs) Uh, I'm trying to say this is a lifelong Christian practice that when we find ourselves not even trying to do it, something's gone amiss and that we need to set ourselves back and figure out disciplines and practices that help us uh, remember our first love, as the psalm puts it. Yeah. I think what what I kept coming back to when I was when I was reading this section of of the book and and another play another quote that I that I have here from my notes um, that really stood out to me is that you said the church is not a very efficient institution for making a difference in the world and that that like part of the sentence just taken by itself I think it could be a very inflammatory sentence um, but what that got me to thinking of is that the church needs to do that which the church can uniquely do. And instead, we spend a lot of time and effort and money and resources doing things in our name, in the name of the church, that could be better done, more cheaply done, more efficiently done by other types of organizations. And, you know, when we do those things, when we try to take credit primarily for those things, those secondary things, we lose out on that which we can uniquely do, which is the worship of God. Yeah, I mean, a a great example of that was uh, a decade or so ago, uh, we began to see some dramatic turn in the the alleviation of poverty worldwide. Mm -hmm. I mean, the numbers were staggering at how the number of fewer people who are living on poverty, according to the uh, United Nations. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, when, you know, when people started doing research into, well, what happened with this? Well, the main thing that happened is that China and India in particular, uh, you know, their governments opened up possibilities for essentially small businesses and large businesses to have a little more freedom to operate. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were able to make take steps that made differences to millions and millions of people, and it really made a huge difference. And when I I made the argument in my article at CT that the church is really not the best institution to help the poor in this sort of way, uh, and the one of the things the church can do in the midst of that is you know governments being that, that bureaucratic as they are. 
they, are, uh, they might have programs that allow businesses to get started. They might have social programs that alleviate some of the worst uh, uh, aspects of poverty, food stamps and welfare and et cetera. Uh, but they tend, to t- <laughs> they tend to apply all these things so sweepingly and so impersonally. Mm. And the church can come along and kind of help people know that while you're getting money or you're getting opportunities like you never have been, we're, we're here to kind of show you something called uh, love in a very personal way. Uh, and I, I did get a, quite a bit of pushback from people who said that uh, maybe the church isn't the best institution to actually solve the problem of world poverty because they felt really hurt and insulted that they weren't going to be able to do that. And I'm thinking, no, you're like you put it, we're not the best institution for solving a lot of these problems. Um, we're, not, we're not uniquely capable of doing that. That doesn't mean we shouldn't start a food closet. That doesn't mean we shouldn't have uh, a homeless live in our uh, uh, gymnasiums uh, one day a week, like other churches in the community do. Um, unfortunately, yeah, that phrase, I've noticed that phrase that we're going to, we have to uh, be a, um, uh, tra- you know, the phrases that talk about transforming the world, changing the world. In fact, the, re- the most recent cover of my former magazine mm-hmm. uh, uh, basically said, how, do, how, how can we in the coronavirus still change the world? And I just, I just think that's the wrong question. Uh, our job isn't to change the world. It's God's job to change the world. Our job, uh, if anything, is to change ourselves <laughs> yeah. and to love the world. Uh, yeah. The better question would be, how do we love the world in the middle of the Corrado riots? How we change it? That's just I don't think that's our job. Hmm. Um, we've got other work that's much more, much harder to do than that. So. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the other illustrations from the book that really stood out to me um, was you, you you spoke of uh, and this is kind of goes back to that that missional mindset and and the way that most churches approach uh, approach this and you use the example of a youth pastor who's tasked with both outreach into the community but then also discipleship of the church and the the difficulty of both bringing in unchurched people uh, but also over here I need to disciple those who are already in the church and as someone who has been a youth pastor uh, for several years now yes uh, that you know that is probably the main the main you know the main thing is that a lot of churches of course they want to reach out to the community surrounding them and of course they want to bring people to Christ um, and this is true for I think for the church as a whole but what we end up with is we end up with you know we end up with people in the pews, uh, we end up with some very shallow Christians, um, we end up with that we we end up doing really good at the horizontal, um, but we we never really dig deep into discipleship, um, and so this this sort of redefinition that you have here in the book is the the primary goal of the church is. You know, worship. The primary goal of the church is discipleship, is that vertical relationship, and then it's it can only be out of that rootedness, out of the depth of that vertical relationship, that the horizontal relationship then can have any meaning or have as much meaning and value. Yeah, and uh, the uh, the youth pastor example, I just think is a good one. I mean, I was a youth pastor for a year as well, and uh, with all the dynamics that went into that. Well, not, I was a youth pastor for a year, and then I was an associate pastor at a church in which I was responsible for youth. So it it does get right to the heart of the issue very quickly in youth ministry, mm-hmm. uh, what the church is and isn't about. I think, and the other thing is, I think people are afraid, and I think this is a right rightful thing to be afraid of. They're afraid. Well, if I just concentrate on worship, and we just concentrate on discipleship, we're going to end up with a bunch of selfish and self-centered people who don't care about the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, history shows that, that that can happen in the life of the church. And when that happens, Mark Galley and others will write a book about how, how selfish we become. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's our problem. And pragmatic activists, mm-hmm. get it done, change the world America, that's not our temptation. Um, plus, I think, obviously, uh, discipleship at its best, worship at its best, 
we're going to walk out of worship on Sunday going, what? That is, God is just so good. God has been so good to me. God is present everywhere in the world. What can I do to help people know that? Mm. <laughs> out of the service. Uh, if you walk out self-satisfied and smug, we're people of the light and everyone else is in the, is in the land of darkness and uh, we're going to be like that Pharisee in uh, Jesus' parable. Uh, yeah. uh, but I think done, done well and physically, it's going to, it's going to excite. The, the thing we have to realize is all the reform movements of the 19th, 19th century, everything from uh, a temperance movement to the... Uh, to the uh, anti-slavery movement, uh, to the work in, in uh, this work of Salvation Army and others in the inner city and the urban life, those those were all spawned by revivals when which people mm. fell in love with God again. Right. <laughs> yeah. So um, they quickly degenerate when God is not at the very center and uh, focus of those movements, but. That's what gets generated when when God is loved and, and experienced in these ways. Yeah, the, the vertical can drive the horizontal, but the the horizontal does not as easily drive the vertical. Right, right. Um, the the last part of the book is is I guess the most practical that you get, and you talk about some different um, you know, rituals within the church, um, the way the sort of evangelicals view the church service and, um, and and other other things that we don't you know we don't have time to cover them uh, one by one so just sort of as a whole um, how do you feel like evangelical churches should change or adjust their services uh, to sort of better reflect this this vertical relationship this primary ideal that we're going to worship God here? That is a really good question. <laughs> um, yeah, in terms of coming down to one thing, I don't know what I would say about that, other than I suppose when it comes to worship, um, I would encourage, I guess there's two groups of people we're thinking about here. Uh, one is uh, worship leaders. Uh, and the temptation of worship leaders, believe me, I was I was a pastor for ten years. I know the temptations of being a worship leader. You want people to walk out uh, enthused for God in some way. Uh, you want them to have a deeper understanding of who God is and His love for them. Uh, and now the t the temptation always is to is to, is to manipulate kind of a surface emotion in order to make people feel like something spiritual has really happened. Now that's when I was a pastor, praise music and uh, all that sort of thing was not not the rage. But now I see it. And you talk to you talk to worship leaders today, and they'll say that is it. They'll be the first to admit it's a temptation that they could get people. It's not difficult to get people on a spiritual high with contemporary music. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not the challenge. The challenge is can you can you help them really meet God in that time. Uh, and how you do that, uh, you know, you have to talk to a worship leader. What is the difference between people, the church service becoming just a spiritual uh, pep rally or becoming a place where people deeply encounter God? Uh, you probably should have someone on your show that can talk about that because I think they would help, they would help uh, discern that. From a worshiper's point of view, uh, the worshiper... Uh, has to begin to come to worship with an added, with the with the focus being on God, mm. not on the experience I'm about to have with God, and especially in contemporary worship services, the temptation is I want to go to church because I want to have a certain experience. Mm -hmm. I had this experience once. I have it every once in a while. I feel like I feel God. I feel like God's with me. I feel like God loves me, and I want to have that feeling again. And we just have to disabuse ourselves of that motive. Those things will happen. God is good. He's gracious. Those things will happen. But the focus should be, I'm here to, to worship God, to sing his praises, to listen to his word, to listen to his message in the preached word. And whether it makes me feel good or doesn't make me feel good, whether it makes me feel like I'm on a spiritual high or doesn't make me feel on a spiritual high, 
My focus is going to be on God, who he is, what he's done for me, and as a result, what I can do for him. Uh, And that's a huge difference in how you attend worship and why you attend worship. Mm -hmm. But I think our worship service is so trafficked in being spiritual pep rallies, that's that's going to be a hard frame of mind for us to to shift ourselves out of. It's the same frame of mind we have to do, we have to get into when we talk about our uh, our daily prayer. Mm. If we if we wait around on daily prayer for more, uh, we're not going to do daily prayer until we feel spiritually motivated to do it, or we're going to be continually critical of our daily prayer because we don't feel God. We're never going to get around to daily prayer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it's all about us. Mm-hmm. And we're bored. We're bored with ourselves already. We'll only become more bored with ourselves if it's all about us and how we feel. So somehow we have to shift from that uh, that focus on the self and how the self is feeling to focusing on God and who he is and what he calls us to do. Mm-hmm. I think that that might be our, um, our reason so often for moving to these sort of horizontal uh, focuses instead of vertical focuses is because when we when we focus on sort of the more external things and we do things for god in the church um we we kind of get more ready feedback you know when we when we when we help the poor uh for example uh there, there's pretty ready feedback um for that uh that we you know we we immediately we feel good about ourselves and what we've done um you know the the People that we are helping are obviously grateful. Uh, the organization that we're working with is grateful that we're volunteering, and there's there's a sort of this um, this back and forth that makes us feel good. Uh, but the internal spiritual disciplines, you know, prayer, Bible reading, um, we don't really kind of get that back and forth with God all the time, quite so much. And right. and so it becomes very easy just to say, well, <laughs> you know, these these people seem to appreciate me, you know, more more than God does in a sense, and in the terms of like, because if I'm going to develop this vertical relationship, then I have to subordinate myself to God, I have to submit myself to Him, and not be the focus. But for these external horizontal relationships, I I can maintain myself being the focus. And as a you know, human being full of pride, uh, that's a much easier thing. It's a much easier thing to do and keep doing uh, because it helps us retain the focus on ourselves. Those internal uh, disciplines have to have the focus on God. They just have to. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons, one of the dynamics that's going on with uh, with the spiritual life is that there are seasons in which God, in a sense, removes his palpable presence from us. I mean, it's not an untypical experience for a new Christian to just feel in love with God and to be passionate about God, love reading the Bible and love praying, uh, because God is, in fact, near to them in a special way for, for, for a lot of us. But there comes a period in the spiritual life where, the, where God, I think, deliberately withdraws his palpable presence uh, just to help us grow and mature in our faith to the point where we're not going to depend on our feelings and not going to depend on our emotional state in order to give ourselves to him. But that's exactly when we become impatient mm-hmm. and say, oh, this absence means there's something wrong and I need to be doing something different. Or I need to be doing something partly to cover up the emptiness of that feeling that God might not be with me. Uh, but also, like you're saying, there's no immediate, a lot of times with God, there's no immediate feedback. He's a very frustrating character to work with. <laughs> He's very elusive, as I said, as I titled one of my uh, edit, uh, column series, The Elusive Presence. Mm-hmm. It's very frustrating to live with God because he just isn't there on demand like we need him to be. But we can go out and do activity, and we can get immediate results and immediate praise and immediate gratefulness and immediate sense of self-satisfaction. Uh, but to stick with God when he's not feeling like he's present... That is really, really hard. I'll be the first to admit, I am not very good at that. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's part and parcel of the spiritual journey towards God that we have to learn to navigate. Mm-hmm. So part of that comes with, I'm going to get up and go to worship this morning and focus on God, whether it makes me feel good or not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. So as as a whole for this book, if you if a reader if they could only take away one thing from this book, uh, what what piece of advice what what do you hope that just is the main thing that they would take away from it? I think the main thing is uh, just the first thing, the first step toward a spiritual renewal is to recognize how godless our lives really are day to day. And so I hate to be, I hate to have the book kind of start on the negative, but really for the in the spiritual life, the negative is really the most positive thing that can happen. So in this case, it would be, I make the argument early on in the first half of the book is basically showing in time after time and place after place how we manage to put God on the shelf and put the self at the center of everything. And I don't think, I, I think we should feel free to kind of explore that and to be really, really honest with ourselves about that. Because we are in the presence of a merciful God when we're doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it will surprise us and shock us. Like I said in one part of the book, I had gone through periods where I not only uh, don't love, feel like I don't love God, I'm not even sure I want to love God because I know what the demands it will make on me. Mm-hmm. And so my, my really honest prayer is not God help me to love you more, but God help me to even want to love you more. And I think we can be free to be as really honest with God to say where our heart really is at any given moment. I mean, I think to be honest, anybody who doesn't admit that they don't want God in their lives at times, even the most devout Christian, because God is such a pest. He wants so much of us. Mm-hmm. He wants every ounce of our energy, every ounce of our love, every ounce of our heart, every ounce of our mind. And if, uh, if, if I'm typical, I, I rebel against that a lot of days. Yeah. I just do not want someone to take over my life in that sort of way. And I think the first thing I'd like people to see from this book is that that's the type of human being I am. That's the type of human being Christ died for. That's the type of human being that God is staying in touch with. That is the type of human being that God wants to transform. But that's got to be the starting place, a complete and utterly honest admission that we are far, far from the kingdom of God in that respect. Uh, and that's when God can really begin to work with us. Yeah, yeah. All right, one last question for you, and I think I'd be remiss if I just didn't touch on this uh, while I have you here. Is the you know when when we first set up this interview, and I was telling people, "Hey, I'm going to interview Mark Galley." Everyone said, "Are you going to talk about the article that he wrote?" And I don't even have to say which article. Uh, <laughs> the article, yeah. The article. And, the editorial, yeah. Um, I I'm like he I, you know I feel like you you've talked about it so much on platforms that are you know infinitely larger than this one. Um so the only thing that I want to ask you ask you about it is with the benefit of hindsight and and now being several months past it um is there anything that you look back and say man I I wish that would have yeah, I wish I would have done that a little differently. Well, of course, yes. The answer is always yes and no in journalism. Um, There's nothing I've ever written or published that I haven't looked back and said, ah, what was I thinking? I could have done that differently. So, yeah, there there are aspects of that that I I think I could have made clearer. Uh, One thing I didn't make clear, for example, was I tended to uh, uh, throw all evangelicals who supported Trump under the same bus. And I think I could have made it clear that the the editorial was really about what I thought was the idolatry or the false devotion of a, a fairly small group of Trump's uh, evangelical Trump supporters who really are blinded by I don't know what, but can't seem to even admit that he has moral failings, serious, profound moral failings, and that their their unwillingness to talk about that or mention it or defend those moral failings are actually good, that that's a serious problem for the gospel and a serious problem for evangelicalism. Uh, but that only constitutes some of even, uh, Trump's evangelical supporters. There's another group who feel like they are between a rock and a hard place. Uh, they find themselves, as in the 2016 election, they found themselves deeply disturbed by what Hillary Clinton stood for and how she was presenting herself. They were not going to vote for Hillary Clinton, and they didn't feel like they wanted to throw away their vote. And they went to the polling booth, in a sense, holding their nose 
<clears throat> I mean the voting booth, holding their nose, and they cast their their vote for for Trump in that light. And I, I get that. I, you know, I'm not a I'm not a political idealist. I guess sometimes you have to make hard choices. That isn't the choice I made. Uh, I voted for a third party myself. Uh, but I get it when some people have to make that choice. Uh, so it wasn't really that group of people that I'm saying is bringing shame to the name of Christ or evangelicalism. My argument is with the people, like the people who came to the evangelical Trump rally in January right after that editorial, um, who, who basically, when they, when they gathered, you should at some point read the transcript of the opening prayers of that of that uh, of that gathering. First of all, to, to 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 come together to use the name evangelical to identify with Trump, evangelicals for Trump, rather than um, you know that's just that's just a denigration of the name evangelical. That we're going to put it in the service of a political candidate, left or right. That's just terrible. But then to hear the hear their prayers for the president. I mean, they were comparing him inadvertently. I don't think they were doing this consciously, but inadvertently comparing him to the Messiah, to Jesus Christ. Uh, one prayer ended with, we thank you, Father, that Donald Trump sits at the right hand of the Father. Well, that, I, I, I think I understand what the pastor was trying to say there, because in some sense we all sit at the right hand of the Father because of what Christ has done for us. But because he didn't qualify in any way, mm-hmm. it really comes across like Donald Trump is a, is the new Messiah and can do no wrong. And this, it's this type of evangelical for support for Trump that I think is a deep, deep problem. And I would make the same accusation for anybody on the left who supports a candidate on the left in such messianic terms. It's a grave, grave misunderstanding. So I think probably the main thing I would want to make a little more clear in the in the editorial itself was it's that it's it's when that loyalty to a candidate pushes over into idolatry and blindness to his moral failings, that it's a serious problem for our movement. And unfortunately, that is characterized, that still characterizes too much support for Trump uh, in our in our movement. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, Mark, thank you for your time. Uh, thank you for your book. Um, I know that when I spent a couple of days reading through it, it, it really spoke to me, um, really challenged me to, to think about how I was conducting my ministry, um, the way that our church was conducting its ministry, and to to really try to get back to the old song, get back to the heart of worship. Uh, So again, the book is When Did We Start Forgetting About God? It released uh, earlier this month in April of 2020. Um, So go out. I guess, well, don't go out right now. Don't go out. Um, But pick up a copy. Pick up a copy somehow. Um, actually, support your local independent bookseller. Contact them; they'll know how to get a hold of the book. Um, they'll get it for you. Uh, so, again, Mark, thank you for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, and I appreciate what you're trying to do with your podcast and your blog.